going, wow, I bet, you know, it would take like 10 Spotsylvania houses to get, you know, one, uh, one of these. Uh, so we did that. And then we went out, took the ferry out to Fort Sumter. And as I'm sure you're familiar, right, this is where the Civil War began as the South fired on the northern troops that were in, uh, in Fort Sumter. It actually had me thinking as we were, you know, seeing all this beautiful real estate that, uh, you know, on the, on the night when those shots were fired, it was probably not a great time to invest in real estate in Charleston. You wouldn't have wanted to buy a home in Appomattox at that time or a farm in Spotsylvania Courthouse or a building in Richmond or basically any real estate in the South, that would have been a rather poor investment. Or, you know, converting all of your gold to Confederate dollars, let's just say that wasn't where the future was at the time. I wonder if, if we have reckoned with how much our world today is like the South on the eve of that war that our world is in fact temporary, that its systems are in fact ending, that those things that we, we look around and we see around us are, are coming to an end, that the money that we care so much about will cease to have value, and the treasures that we work for will stop having worth, and that the investments that we spend our lives for will crash. And that hoarding these dollars and lifestyle and treasures of this confederacy is a foolish hope. That's what Christ is talking about in Matthew 16, beginning in verse 24. Uh, We're we're picking up. uh, Last week, we we did the, the verses before this. Let me give you a little bit of context before we jump in. We've just hit one of the high points of the whole book of Matthew when Peter proclaimed, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So now the the word is out. The disciples understand that Jesus is the Christ. And then in the previous passage from last week, Christ began to explain what kind of Christ he would be. And they had the picture of, of one kind of king, and he's going to be a king like no other. He came to be a Christ who would suffer and who would die. And so last week we realized that Christ would have his cross. This morning we're going to see that the Christian has their cross as well. So let's read, if you could follow along with me, Matthew 16, beginning in verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life? Or what shall a man give in return for his life? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, 
there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. God's Word. So he begins with these words, if anyone would come after me. Friend, hear this morning the universal call of Jesus Christ. If anyone would come after me. He, he, he calls to the world in this gospel proclamation to come after Christ. Speaks to every man, woman, and child. He doesn't limit this to any particular group. He says, if anyone would come after me. This is a beautiful call from Christ to you this morning to follow after him. None are excluded from this call. That's the good news of the universal call of Christ to the world to repent and to believe. It's good news and it's hard news because the same universality, if anyone is to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That is part of the universal call. It's not part of the call for some of the people. It's part of the universal call of Christ that if anyone would come, must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow him. This is, this is the language of discipleship, right? Discipleship is following Jesus. This is him explaining what does it look like to follow Jesus. He's talking about the cost of discipleship, and he makes clear the cost of discipleship is death. Now we can see it a little bit in the words, let him deny himself. This could speak of denying you know, our fleshly impulses, denying the, our desires, de- denying the, the hoarding of the stuff of earth, wealth and success and comfort and the treasures of this age. But he doesn't stop with that. He says, let him take up his cross and follow me. The disciples were familiar with the horrid spectacle that this was. To take up a cross, this this was done by a condemned individual who had already, judgment had been passed, they were on their way to die, and they would be forced to pick up the instrument of their suffering, of their death, of their torture, and carry it to the place of their execution. That's what it is to take up a cross. It is to be a dead man walking. It's not figurative language like we've watered it down to be. Like everybody has their cross to bear. No. Nobody was thinking that. This was specific and vivid and lurid and horrifying. And the disciples' eyes had to just been just huge as he said this. Jesus is saying that to follow him is to willingly take your place in line of people lining up for the firing squad. Last week, if you were here, we took our time of pastoral prayer to pray for the church broadly on the day of the martyr. Day of the martyr is set aside in remembrance of the day that Paul was killed by Nero. But of course, as Jesus is talking here, 
Peter, he will have his cross. In fact, of the 11 faithful disciples, 10 of them will be killed. As would countless other unnamed believers under Rome and under Islamic caliphates and under English monarchs and French kings and Soviet premiers. And today, in our world, today, Korean dictators and the Chinese state and Colombian rebels are still persecuting the church of God unto death. The words of Christ have martyrdom clearly in view. And if that, then everything less than that as well. All the kinds of self-denial and persecution that culminate in martyrdom. Jesus never sugarcoated the cost of the gospel. He never talked about following him as the way to get more in this world now. We should speak of the gospel as he does. And in the same way that he does. So in light of this cost, one may well think it's not worth it to follow Jesus. Perhaps you feel that even as I speak. Perhaps there's young people here that are for the first time beginning to realize, wow, this is going to be my faith, not just mom and dad's faith. And you're, and you're hearing this. And, what? It's a common response, actually, to Christ is to recoil at the cost following him. And, and Jesus knows as he's talking that he's not talking to a group of human beings that are generally attracted to suffering. He knows that's not the case. And so now he explains why, not just that it's right to follow him, but why it makes sense to follow him. Why it's, why it's in your best interest even to follow him. He actually gives three reasons in this passage, and you can see it as you read your Bible, if you look at the grammar of this passage, look at the first word of verse 25. The first word is for, right? So he's just said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me for blah, blah, blah. Because of this thing, I'm about to tell you, this is why you should do this. Here's the reason. Here's the rationale. You see that word, first word of verse 25? Look at the first word of verse 26. And the first word of verse 27. Four and four and four. Three times he gives three reasons. This is a tightly reasoned argument as to why we would follow Christ even unto death. Why does that make sense? And the first reason then from verse 25 is the certainty of loss. The certainty of loss. Verse 25, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So Jesus, Jesus is anticipating how they're feeling right now. Pick up the cross and follow you. I'm not interested. He says, okay, you're interested in saving your life. Let us consider that road for a minute. Would you seek to save your life? You will lose it. There is no saving your life. To, to turtle down and crawl into your shell 
or to double down and invest all you've got in this world will be to lose everything. Loss is inevitable because this life is temporary. It is temporary for you and for me and for every human being. It does not last. Your life will not last and the world will not last with all of its systems and treasures and profit margins. I tell you, the older I get, the faster life goes. Do you feel that? It just picks up and speeds up. Have you, have your eyes pierced the veil of permanence that lies over this world? It is just a veil. It is a fiction. This world is not permanent. Have you recognized yet how little time this confederacy has to live? And how foolish to invest in Charleston real estate? In light of that time, loss is certain. And that makes what Jesus is saying in this verse sweet. It makes his promise sweet because not only does he say whoever would save his life will lose it, but then he says whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So there's loss on both cases. One who seeks to save loses. The one who loses finds it. But not just loses it like, you know, I don't care about my life. You know, forget it. I'm checking out. I don't know. It says whoever loses it for my sake. This is discipleship language. This is the willingness to deny ourselves, take up the cross, and follow after him. On that road, life is found. And this is the promise of a deeper, better, fuller, lasting, eternal life beyond death that can't be touched by death that remains. So here's your options. The verse gives us two and only two. You may gain so that you may lose. Or you can lose so that you may gain. There is no third way. There is no other option. Wish it all you want. It doesn't change the reality. Pretend like you can gain now and gain later. And you will simply find yourself confirming the words of Jesus that all who seek to save their life will lose it all. There are but two ways. Number one, we said, first reason he gives is the certainty of loss. Number two, the desirability of gain. The desirability of gain. Let's look at verse 26. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits its life, his life? Or what shall a man give in return for his life? Jesus uses the language of profit, of a return on investment. This is what every business person wants. This is what every employee goes to work for, what every worker applies themselves for, what every entrepreneur builds a business for. In fact, this is what every human being is about, is investing their time in such a way that maximizes the return back to them, that earns them some kind of a profit. 
So Jesus appeals to our profit motive. He says, okay, let's play the game. Let's say you decide you're not going to follow me. You're going to live for now. Let's say it works beyond all your imaginations and dreams. No guarantee. But let's say for you that it does. In fact, you gain the world, the entire world. You are worldwide owner and emperor of everything. CEO of earth. All right? And now you come to the end. And the end will come. And you will find that you have traded all that for your soul. That's where you will be. You have chosen this life and not the next. And now you face the inevitable reality of eternity away from God in eternal death and suffering. Did you profit? Did it work? Was it worth it? What profit is it to you to gain the whole world and lose yourself and lose your soul? And then he he actually asked two questions in this verse. Second one, what shall a man give in return for his soul? So now you're there. You made the terrible choice. You've gained the whole world. You've lost your soul. And on the eve of your own death, all right, let's make a deal. What are you going to give for your soul? You're going to give $1,000? Half your treasure? The whole earth? It's a rhetorical question because you cannot give enough. You cannot ransom your own soul. You cannot, no matter what you have, pay enough to get your soul back. It is worth far more than the sum total of what you had already gained. What profit is it to trade your soul for stuff that rots and decays? Friend, the call of the passage is to trade what rots and decays for your soul by following Christ. That's the call of this. So he's given us two reasons why it makes sense to follow him. Here's the third. So first, the certainty of loss, the desirability of gain, and number three, the supremacy of Christ. The supremacy of Christ. Let's look at verses 27 and 28. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. Then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Okay, so he calls himself the Son of Man in this uh, passage. He calls himself the Son of Man twice, once at the beginning and once at the end. The Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. He, this is Jesus' favorite self-designation in the book of Matthew. And he gets it from the book of Daniel. Now, if you want, I'm going to read something from the book of Daniel here in a second so we see the context. You could flip over to Daniel 7, keep your finger here, or I'll read it for you. So he gets this title for himself, Son of Man, out of Daniel, and it is Daniel chapter 7, and it's verses 13 and 14, and these are glorious verses. Here's what it says. Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory 
and a king and a kingdom that all peoples nations and languages should serve him his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed that's the son of man he had i i can't imagine what it was like to try to follow jesus in real time as you're listening it's one of the disciples you know because at first they're all like yay jesus is the christ and then he's like yeah but and he just paints with these dark brush strokes what it means to be the christ and then he says yeah but the christ is also supreme and he reigns over all and he's coming in the glory of his father now there's a detail i read uh, in Daniel, a detail that we need to notice because it's going to change the way, probably, you think about the coming of Christ and what that phrase means. So when we hear, I think, when we hear the phrase, the coming of Christ, most of us think of that time when he will return to earth, when he will come here, right? That is not the way Daniel uses that phrase. Let's look again at those words of Daniel. Behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one, there's that word, came one, like the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. See, in Daniel, the coming of Christ is his coming into his kingdom, is his coming to the Ancient of Days where he has given this kingdom and this authority and this rulership that will never end. That's the beginning of his coming. And then that is expressed when he returns to earth, right? Now, from our perspective, I understand why we think of the coming of Christ as his return to earth, because like we're here. So we're hoping he comes here. But when Jesus speaks and when the, when the scriptures speak of the coming of Christ, it includes both. It's his coming into his kingdom and then his exercising his reign once he's there, which includes like the last judgment and his return and all that kind of thing. Okay. So this means that Christ has come into his kingdom already. He's, he's already come to his throne. He's already come to his kingdom. He did that in the resurrection and the ascension. That was his coronation moment when he received the kingdom from his father and now he sits at the right hand of God and now he is supreme and now he is judge and one day he will return. And this is why verse 28 actually makes sense. Where he says to his disciples, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the son of man coming in his kingdom. Now if you interpret that to be the second coming of Christ back to earth, this makes no sense whatsoever because the disciples are not still alive, right? So it doesn't make any sense that this is the return of Christ to earth. What he's speaking of here is he's just called himself the son of man. He's referencing Daniel. He's coming into his kingdom before his father. That's what's going to happen. And the disciples were alive. They watched him go at the ascension. And he said, some of you will be here. Of course, Judas was not there anymore. He was unfaithful, and then he killed himself. So he did taste death before this. But the rest of the disciples did not. So, 
Jesus is supreme right now. He is in his kingdom right now. He has come unto his kingdom right now. We are speaking of the supreme Christ. And so, as the Son of Man, who in our day and age, 2021, has come into his kingdom, he speaks a terrible warning as the judge of the living and the dead. He says in verse 27, the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. So all who abandon Christ, who set their hope in this world, who, who choose the treasures of this world over following Christ, will be judged by none other than the one whom they rejected. And he will be supreme. And none can or will stay his hand as he rules. It is a fierce warning and a precious promise to a suffering church. It's a precious promise because, because it's a promise of reward for his people. He will repay. That's got a negative connotation and a positive connotation. He will repay. All who deny themselves and take up their cross and follow this suffering Savior. They're not just following the suffering Savior, the suffering Christ. They're following the supreme Christ, the one who reigns over all. And he's not just going on ahead to kind of like put in a good word for you with the judge. He's the judge. And he will bring his reward with him. And none will stop him from rewarding his people who have followed him through suffering. Friends, church, right now, Jesus reigns. He has come into his kingdom. He will bring it to fulfillment. He will bring his rewards with him. Even now he reigns, though his people suffer. Though his people must deny themselves. Though they bear crosses even unto death. Whoever loses their life for his sake will find it because he's on his throne. And he will return. And he will reward. Verse 28 begins with the word truly. Truly. Here is a sweet and very precious promise from God. Here's a rock that you can build your life on when the tide is swirling around you. Here's a truth you can cling to in the confusion of life. I haven't seen heaven either. But he says, truly, this we can cling to. This we can believe. He has the name that's above every name. He does reign on high. He will bring his kingdom to fulfillment, which means that the days of this confederacy are numbered. The first shots have been fired on Fort Sumter. Don't invest in southern real estate or try to accumulate confederate dollars. It is hopeless to do so because he will win. All of this is becoming obsolete and will soon be, as they say, gone with the wind. But Christ will remain and he will cause his people to stand and he will bring his reward with him and his reward is eternal. Friend, I, I want to close with this. Perhaps as you're hearing this, you're just thinking, this is just 
too much for me. I know myself too well. How can I do this? You, mu you must be one of those uh, strange people that doesn't like suffering. No. Don't know if you're strong enough for suffering or brave enough for martyrdom. Got that, as you hear this, just that nagging thing in the back of your mind. I, ju I just don't have it in me. Um, let me encourage you with some discouraging words. You're right. You don't. Of course you don't have it in you to do this. Friends, discipleship is not for the strong, nor the naturally brave, or the lover of suffering. Discipleship is for the lover of Jesus, for the one who is weak and looks to him for strength. That's who it's for, who takes their fears and goes to him with them. Listen, do you remember what Jesus did before his cross? You know, he spent the whole night awake, crying, sweating, drops of blood, praying to God, taking his fear over suffering, taking his weakness. Did he not cling to God in prayer? And will you succeed some other way? Will you find it in you to just man up and do it? Friend, that is not the call. Here is your hope. It's not you. It's him. Here's the hope of the believer. To take our fears to him. To take our weakness to him. To take our inabilities to him. And to experience from him the strength to follow him. He who calls you is able to make you stand. Church. He who calls you is able to make you stand. Your Lord is able as the supreme Christ who reigns right now, to make you stand. Follow him. Let's pray. Father, I don't remember a passage that leaves us more empty, more aware of our need, less confident in ourselves than this. What a wonderful place to be if that leads us to you. So, Lord, I pray that you would meet each one listening now with your spirit. Oh, Lord, help us depend upon you in our discipleship. Help us follow after you. Lord, when we fail in it like Peter did, even denying you, help us turn back to you and find grace, mercy, strength to follow you. You are our all, and all our hope is in you. It's in your name, Christ, that we pray. Amen.